0: Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series website and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandoned America. That's patreo dot com slash abandoned America. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer.
1: Hi. I'm Matt Lambrose, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon.
0: Catskills region in New York has been a popular vacation destination for thousands of people, but since the 1970s, tourism has slumped and many large resorts have closed. In this episode, I'm joined by Matt Lambrose, creator of the After the Final Curtain book series website and podcast. We're going to take a look at what made the Borscht Belt boom in the late 1800s and again in the early 1900s, and what factors led to the decline and abandonment of its grand resorts in both its silver and golden ages. We'll also talk about the most epic and petty battle over fried chicken in the entire history of mankind. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. Actually, I'm pretty excited about what we're talking about today. So,
1: you want to fill our folks in? I guess so. I guess we can let them in on it. We're going to be talking about the Catskills, and in particular the Borscht Belt and the resorts. That are very popular among the exploring crowd. That are all up there.
0: Yeah, I th- and and it's kind of funny because my wife, who is Jewish, made a dinner of lox and bagels tonight for me, and we had a, a really delicious kosher moscato that she loves. And she was like, "Oh, you should plug them on the show because then maybe they'll send us some free." things of wine and i forgot their names, so we're just not going to tell her about that
1: i didn't know what Moscato was until you said it was wine so oh gosh it's great i mean it depends you are do you like sweet wine i don't have opinion on wine i don't like white wine that's oh, that's huh. pretty much it i'll try red wine i will almost never order it anywhere except for when i'm in paris because you know that's what you do when you're in paris
0: yeah, I'm not a snob. I'm not. A, I'm not really a snob about most uh, alcoholic beverages, unfortunately. But yeah, so that was the prep was having a nice. Actually, it was more coincidence than anything, and we just thought about it halfway through the meal. Like, oh, we're going to be talking about the borscht belt, and I'm having
1: bagels and lox
0: for dinner. So,
1: there you go. Oh well, I did not have that for dinner. I had. I did not have a theme in for dinner. I had uh, my wife's family is from the Midwest. One of the dishes that her father loved is called hamburger casserole, so we had that. It's basically hamburgers and um, tater tots, onions, and then ketchup. It's pretty good. Dad, I don't think that ties into her. No, our it's not. Belt you, at all. <laughs> if we do, maybe if we do the rust belt. Right. Yes, rust belt, that would totally work. I think you have nailed that. Make sure to make her make that again. I'm sure she will have no problem with that. Uh, when we do the Rust Belt eventually.
0: So, I mean, um, before we, I guess, get into, like, the uh, the guts of the history or whatever, I mean, what would you say, if you were giving, like, an overview, like, why does anybody care about the Catskills, and what do they have to do with
1: exploring? Well, for a while, I don't know how many are left. I, mean, I know there's still a couple up there. But for a while, it was open season on abandoned resorts all over the Catskills. At one point, there were over 500 hotels and 2,500 bungalow colonies or smaller resorts in the area. And I remember back when I first started exploring, there was this uh, woman named Dree who was from Poughkeepsie who explored. And her favorite place was the Pines Resort. And she had a map that she had made where she had mapped out where... Basically, all the the abandoned ones were all the ones that she thought might still have some buildings, all the ones that had been demolished, and all the ones that had were either repurposed or had been yet to close. And this thing, it was like a she'd printed it out and just dotted it. It it was crazy. It looked like some, I don't know if you've seen a lot of explorers now that use Google Maps and they put pins down. Right. you have seen some of those. It looked like that, but it was literally of just a couple counties in New York. Mm-hmm. I've been to, I think, four or five up there. Not as many, definitely not as many as most people. But some of them that I went to, I really enjoyed. Uh, What about you? Well, I mean,
0: yeah, I, I haven't been to a ton. There are a handful that I've been to that are up in that area. But, I mean, kind of, I think, your original point about why it's significant and relevant overall is the fact that it is actually very well known as a place that has had a lot of abandoned things in it and actually I mean you know with some of the stuff that I have sort of on my end of the episode it's not really like a new thing it's there's been quite a bit of that over its history a lot of these resorts that kind of come and go and then are just sitting there for like 20 years or 30 Mm -hmm. years and falling apart so it has that kind of aura about it I would say that if you're on the east coast and you're talking about places that are known for abandoned things i mean the first thing everybody always brings up is centralia which sooner or later we're gonna to have to do an episode on that and i don't really want to but maybe
1: we'll get there well we're um, gonna do a 15 minute episode on centralia there's nothing there
0: it's so gone anyways, right but as far as as the Catskills go that's i mean if you're if you're kind of even tangentially interested in this you know there's been a lot of places up there uh, as you mentioned like a lot of them are gone but it's kind of interesting to look at the story of like what happened and how they came to be abandoned. So yeah, should we roll from that onto you know, the actual stories of, of the place itself? Absolutely, take it away. All right, so I kind of did, there are two significant periods that people talk about when you're looking at the resorts and the Catskills. There's what's considered sort of the uh, the Silver Age, which is 1890 to 1915. And then there's the golden age, which is what you're gonna be talking about, which is more like 1940 to 1965. And looking at the original period, you have this 1890s to 1915 point. It didn't start then though. It started actually quite a ways before that. And one of the reasons that the Catskills became known or that they even had people up there were that there were wealthy people from New York City that wanted to get out of the city in the summer. And a kind of recurring theme that you see over the years, cities are hot in the summer. They're hot and they're stinky and they're not fun. This is before air conditioning. So if you're rich, why would you not go somewhere where it's incredibly beautiful and scenic? So this place that really was kind of the origin of the Catskills was a plateau between the mountains known as a pine orchard. And these wealthy people would basically get in a stagecoach and ride up these windy mountain roads to get up to the top of this. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when you think of some of the really huge resorts that they had up there and what it must have been like riding up these roads through the mountains and then coming out around a bend and then you look and there's this grand hotel on this mountain plateau. You know, you can see Catterscale a, a Falls from it. There are rich people riching about. It must have been really impressive. So that was basically sort of where it started was that you had this place right by Catterscale Falls that became really well known for its beauty and, and rich people wanted to go up there. And for example if you're into if you're kind of like an art buff I don't know if you ever heard of Thomas Cole you're nodding you're familiar with him painter yes there's this whole uh, it was like the Hudson River School of Artists yeah grew up near there so oh right so you must have seen his work because uh, I mean if you go up in that area you can't throw a stone without hitting one of his paintings somewhere <laughs> I'm sure that's probably why he's familiar to me and, and he's, he's an absolutely awesome painter. They had these really kind of just gorgeous, gorgeous scenes of the mountains up there and, and painted in this very kind of romantic glory of nature sort of way. Other people that it attracted to that area was people like the writer Washington Irving. So, you know Washington Irving? Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, and Sleepy Hollow was actually a trail that was part of Pine Orchard.
1: Really? Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. It's in the town of Pleasantville, is where it's said to take place. Or the There's a graveyard in, in that town, that, and this is getting off topic. There's a spot in the graveyard, if you believe these fun stories, where the Hessian, the headless horseman, is said to be buried. And it's a spot that's the size of a grave that no grass will grow. Oh. Well, and I have been by that graveyard. I haven't been into
0: it. I know exactly where you're talking about. And and, and I have to be honest with you here. When I saw Sleepy Hollow Trail, I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, that must be like the trail that the Headless Horseman was on. But now that you're mentioning it, it could just be that they were like, oh, Washington Irving hung around up here. But the point is that this is the area that he's kicking around. And one thing I can tell you for sure is that the story of Rip Van Winkle was supposedly set at the foot of the mountains in Palinville. So, you know, that's something that that's definitely a, a regional claim to fame. So you have these people that are painters and writers that are coming up there. You have rich folks that are coming up to enjoy the area. And surely enough, you somebody says, Hey, I'm gonna build a, a, a resort for these people to come up to. So the Catskill Mountain House was built in 1824. And it was actually one of the first resorts in the United States. And again, I mean, you know, I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself with the people riding the stagecoaches up there, but that was essentially how you did it. You would ride the rail to a certain point, you get a stagecoach, they would take you up. Well, that's inefficient. So this place being absolutely huge resort and quite popular... Had a railway line that basically went to it in eighteen sixty six and by eighteen eighty three it connected to new york City so i don 't know if you remember when I said it was like eighteen ninety to eighteen fifteen was like the real heyday of this area, but if you want to drop a pin in where that happened, it was pretty much the railway line being established, and all of a sudden you don 't have to ride a stagecoach up through the mountains. you can get on a train and go up there and This was when the area really boomed. So, of course, they're going to have more than one hotel. And of the hotels that were up there, first of all, most of the hotels were in a a Victorian style. There were four main ones. There was the Catskill Mountain House, which was the first one. There was Hotel Catterskill and Laurel House. And then the only one that is surviving from that is the Mohonk Mountain House, which uh, I was looking into, first of all, if you ever want to see a absolutely gargantuan resort go to their website and oh, I, I, I did oh you did did you look at how much the rooms are
1: per day i did not i just saw that it survived and was very interested in that how much would you guess a night at room in
0: place like that would be now yeah on average 250 dollars a grand <laughs> yeah now jesus Hmm? even like if i were to go up tomorrow it would be roughly a grand to go up there according to their website at least so way beyond my means i can dream
1: but i'm gonna have to look into that because that sounds a little expensive i mean it must be a fantastic place to stay you must get a lot of uh, a lot a lot out of it well, I mean, I think part of what you get out of it, and this is the thing that people,
0: at least originally, that was really known for is you're not around the plebes, right? I mean, you know, if you go up there and uh, you're spending a grand a day and you have this beautiful lake and beautiful scenery around you and, and there's no commoners except the ones that serve you. So I guess that's why you pay a grand a day because you can. But off the class struggle in Mohonk, back to the the, uh, the Catskill Mountain House and all those, So, Cascade Mountain House, we'll talk about first, because that was the first one, and it was a super prestigious place. I mean, there are a lot of people that were kind of very famous that went there. So, among the U.S. presidents, you had Ulysses Grant, you had Teddy Roosevelt, you had Chester Arthur that all went there and were guests. One of the other guests, and I, I think this is an awesome story, I have two really super good short stories for you tonight that I'm very excited about because, you know, I absolutely love the weird shit in history. Um, Oscar Wilde was one of the guests at the Catskill Mountain House, and he was giving a lecture, and during his lecture, he went on a tangent about how much the Catskill Mountain House and its guests suck. (laughs) You know, because he's Oscar Wilde, and he's already kind of like a notorious guy, and so this was like a big thing. Oh, and, by the way, one of the guests got so pissed off at him for going on this that he beat him with a large sunflower a sunflower a sunflower
1: Melissa well, probably didn't hurt very much <laughs> I know
0: if you've got to beat Oscar Wilde and you don't have anything else so you just got if you if what you have to beat Oscar Wilde with is a large sunflower a large sunflower is what you beat him with mm, I guess <laughs> uh, I love that I I love the stories I have an even better one arguably coming up but yeah, so that was essentially the, uh, the Catskill Mountain House was a place that was really super famous. It closed in 1941. And it actually sat abandoned for a number of years. It was, uh, let me just check the old notes and do the old math. It was about 20 years. So there was a guy that, that bought it and was hoping to fix it up. And actually, it's kind of funny because we see this stuff Uh, This is very much like modern abandoned buildings. You have the owner with the dreams of fixing the place up. He doesn't have the money to do it. The place really starts to fall apart. He has scrappers come in and remove some of the, the elements of the building and nothing comes to the plants. And eventually, this plot of land where all of these places were was taken over by the Department of Environmental Conservation and turned into... Where is it in my notes? Catskill State Park, I believe. I'm going to come back to that if I'm incorrect on the exact name, but it's it's Catskill State Park. And um, anyway, they decided to burn the ruins of it. So in 1963, the Department of Environmental Conservation burned it down. And I think you were saying, were you saying there's still some of the... Yeah, the
1: shell is still there. You can go in the Catskill Park and it's like just a shell of a building. Have you been there? I have not, but I know a lot of people who have. It's like, what do you want to do if you if you feel like exploring, but you don't actually feel like exploring? You can go do that.
0: Yeah, I didn't, uh, until you told me about that, I didn't realize that any of it still stood. I'm
1: fairly surprised because it was a wooden building. So The Catskill Mountain House? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's a uh, stone that's left. Oh,
0: well, you know, they may have used that in the foundations or whatever, but in the main building... Was mostly wood if you look at the pictures of it. But again, I mean, that's quite possibly that there are foundations or chimneys or things like that. That anyway, so that is the Catskill Mountain House. Catskill Mountain House was fiercely competitive. The one that was its main rival was,
1: oh, I'm sorry, you got oh, something? Sorry, on? I confused it with the Overlook Mountain House. The Overlook Mountain House is the one that's still around and is stone.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, when you look at the pictures of it, I mean, I I would be shocked if they didn't have some stone elements in it, but it definitely was not primarily that. So Hotel Catterskill is built from 1880 to 1881, and it is the chief rival of the Catskill Mountain House. They have a very, very bitter rivalry. And they're constantly trying to outdo each other and outbuild each other. And this is something that you're going to see in the later years too, is people being very competitive with each other, trying to outdo each other in renovations and lavishness. And then in some cases, spending themselves into the ground by doing it. The architect of Hotel Catterskill was Philly guy. His name was Stefan Decatur Button. Um, And he did a lot of stuff in Philadelphia and Cape May and including the Mount Moriah Gatehouse, which I thought was pretty cool because that's uh, Mount Moriah Cemetery is a place that I've had workshops at. I've been to about a million and a half times, so it's always neat when you can kind of connect the dots. And I think the Hotel Catterskill has the coolest reason that it has been founded ever, which also incidentally explains the rivalry between the two places. So the owner of Hotel Catterskill was George Harding, and he built it because he went to the Catskill Mountain House at some point, and he was in the dining room, and he wanted to eat fried chicken. And they said, no, we don't serve fried chicken. We serve red meat. And he said, well, I want fried chicken. I'm paraphrasing here. And they said, well, we only serve red meat. We don't serve fried chicken. And he said, I wanna speak to the owner of this place. So they got the owner, and he said, I want fried chicken. And the owner said, if you want to eat fried chicken, go build your own
1: hotel. (laughs) And Uh, he did. I I know it's not the best, but I I sort of love when people do things that extreme out of spite. Mm -hmm. It is the pettiest story I think I've
0: ever heard revolving around not being able to get fried chicken. I mean, think of if you were somebody out there that works in the service industry, think of the worst Karen you have ever had come into your place that wants something that you cannot give them. And then imagine they get so mad at you for not giving them the fried chicken at McDonald's Uh, (laughs) that they go out and they found your primary competitor and then they just fight you. For the rest of the time that you two are there, that's Hotel Catterscale, and that to me is awesome. That's not the one that's still around, is it? No, Hotel Catterscale burned in 1924, oh, and it didn't very long, huh? What's that? I said, oh, it didn't last very long. No, mo- I mean it's funny. Most of these places wind up burning, which is sort of a problem. Yeah. But the fire was so big that you could see it in Massachusetts. Oh. And then the third one that I'm going to talk about is the Laurel House, which was built in 1852. It was enlarged in 1881 by our good friend S.D. Button, who worked on the Catter- Hotel Catterskill. And that was closed and abandoned in the early 1950s. Uh, it opened again for a hot minute. When there were these people that came in and, and uh, you know gave it all the modern stuff, like a pizza oven and whatnot. But it closed again by 1963. And the Department of Environmental Conservation burned it in 1967. So they were just all about burning the old hotels up there. When I do these episodes and I read about this stuff, I think about all the places that I want to go, all the places that I missed. I get really bent out of shape about it sometimes. I think, oh my gosh, like you're going to talk about the Concord later. And it's like, I I really wish I would have seen the Concord, but I didn't get to go there. And when you look at these places in the past, like Casco Mountain House, I would love to have been able to go back and photograph that in the 20 years that it was abandoned. I mean, I think it's really a shame that they just basically set them on fire, even though these places were kind of the origin of that region. So... Basically, what started happening after this was once you had the railway lines that were coming in, they started in the early 1900s, they got a pretty big influx of Jewish vacationers on the rails from New York City. And there's no cool way of putting this. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the people that were staying in that area. In fact, they had uh, this summer homes booklet that they put out that advertise places to go in the area. And if you look in the like 1892 edition, you have hotels that are saying things like Jews need not apply or no Hebrews or consumptives. So basically they start having hotels that were catering to Jewish vacationers. And this is us going into the Borscht Belt. I'm assuming you're gonna kinda wanna take that, yeah?
1: Yeah, so as this started to expand, the Catskills started to divide up into ethnic regions, sort of. They were the, and they were all called the Alps. So you had the Irish Alps, the Italian Alps, and the Jewish Alps, which were the Borscht Belt. And this was because Jewish people in New York City wanted to go on vacation and they weren't welcome at the other resorts. So they sort of did the same thing as the, the guy who wanted fried chicken. They said, okay, you don't want us at yours. We're going to make our own. Right. Which, no, great. Is fried chicken kosher? I mean, I, I think so. I guess yeah. I you'd prepare it. it. It would have to be kosher. Okay. Yeah. We want our kosher fried chicken. Yeah. I mean, essentially. Yeah, right. It's So Borscht Belt, or Jewish Alps, refers to part of the Catskills in Sullivan, Orange, and Ulster counties in New York. And they were really popular from for a Jewish vacation spot or vacation spot from Jewish people from the New York metropolitan area from the 1920s to the 1960s. And to research this, I read uh, a great book called It Happened in the Catskills, which is by uh, Myra Katz-Fromer. And, you know,
0: that's a good point. I didn't mention where I did a lot of my research from. I don't mean to hop in, but the one that I looked in a lot of this information up was Catskill Resorts, Lost Architecture of Paradise by Ross Padlock, and it is a awesome book. I totally recommend that. We can link to both those in the show notes. Back to you. Sorry, I just wanted to throw that out while I was thinking about it.
1: No problem. So she goes into a little bit about uh, why the Catskills, and it's a lot of it is the same reason uh, they are wealthy people from New York who wanted to get away, and they weren't welcome at the other resorts, so they started their own. It was uh, a place for everyone, all the whole family to get together, but also to become. Americanized to play, to do uh, sports, swimming, things you'd think of when you think of uh, like good, old, like uh, America, like apple pie and baseball and all of that. But the area in the Catskills reminded a lot of people of the old country. They had berry picking, there's pine trees. And so there were some of the larger resorts in the area. You had Grossingers, which was from 1919 to 1986, the Concord Resort Hotel, which was from 1937 to 1998. The Pines Resort, which was 90, 1933 to 1998. Both of these surprised me that they closed in 98 because I've been to both of them, and it was shocking that they closed that late. The Haydn Hotel, which was my favorite. Uh, you had Irvington, the Neville Tuck Inn, the Laurels Hotel, Tamarack Lodge, Stephenville, the Windsor, and Kushner's Hotel and Country Club, which was the last to close. Do you know when it closed? Do you want to guess? Uh-
0: You know what, I actually do know this, I want to say, and I'm saying off the top of my head, but it's like 2012, wasn't it? Or 2013, they had a thing where there was uh, somebody, you're going to go into this, uh, the person who committed
1: suicide? No, I wasn't going to go into that. Oh. Uh, I didn't didn't find out anywhere. I was going to go into that. It was marketing itself at the time as the last Catskill Resort. And it closed in 2013. It was demolished soon after.
0: Kutcher's is one of the ones that is like one of the big fish that got away from me. I was really, really upset about not getting to photograph that one because it was a hugely famous resort. They Obviously, the last one that was open, they still had a number of festivals. And um, I didn't look into this particular part. So maybe I'll do this while we're talking. But there was uh, essentially somebody who either fell or committed suicide. And that was kind of like the final nail in the coffin for the place, and they closed down. And I tried so hard to get into this place. I contacted the company that owned it, and they kept saying, oh yeah, call back, you know, we'll figure something out. Like they didn't tell me to get lost, which a lot of people do. But essentially, by the time they started demolition, we're already like waist deep and tearing the place down. I still was calling this stupid guy back that was essentially saying, well, maybe call me back later. And they just went ahead
1: with it anyway. Yeah, I find that happens a lot. It happened to me with the, uh, uh, to be honest, it happened to me with the Kings when I was going to restore it. I I think I, I probably called the guy every day for about a month to try to get in. And I missed them taking the seats out because it took so long to get everything set. It was like a four month period of, call you tomorrow and we'll figure it out. Call me tomorrow and we'll figure it out. Anyway, back to the hotels. So the two, I'm going to talk about three of them, but the two that are the most well-known out of all of these are really the Concord and Grossinger's. I mean, not just from an exploring standpoint, but from if you asked people, they might have a knowledge of both of them. So I'm going to start with Grossinger's. Asher Sully Grossinger moved uh, from New York City in the early 1900s. He rented rooms to visitors at first and then in a place called Longbrook House. They sold it and purchased a bigger house on 100 acres and called it Grossinger's Terrace Hill House and then began expanding. It was the first resort in the world to use artificial snow in 1952. They tried to rename the train station at Ferndale into Grossinger's and they offered a million dollars, but the other hotel owners in the area were upset about that and they weren't able to do it. Yeah, they were super
0: competitive. I mean, they were all trying to outdo each other's and Grosinger's was kind of the grand dam. So yeah. yeah, I could see where they would be upset about that. So
1: by 1972, the hotel had grew, grown to 35 buildings on uh, 1,200 acres and it served 150,000 guests a year. It had its own airstrip and its own post office. But... At this point, and I'll get into why a little later, the guests started to decline. And in August 1984, uh, they promoted a Woodstock weekend to mark the 15th anniversary of the festival, and it had uh, a performance by David Clayton Thomas, an appearance by John Sebastian, Abby Hoffman, who, if you watched uh, the excellent Trial of the Chicago 7, uh, it was played by Sasha Baron Cohen in that he was a political activist and it's the Groshinger's is widely recognized for the Catskill Resort that uh, inspired Kellerman's Mountain Resort from the film Dirty Dancing starring Patrick Swayze right anyway, it was sold in 1986 and closed the same year the golf course though remained open until 19, or 2017
0: Just one thing to throw on to the dirty dancing thing is it's kind of funny because I have a feeling, and when you look at the hotels that are in this, the resorts that are in this period, there's a lot of myth-making that goes on with them. There's a lot of like, uh, oh, this famous person got his start here, or kind of like you talk about with theaters and such, too. Uh, that sort of thing happening. But Brown's also claimed to be the inspiration for Dirty Dancing. It was actually filmed at a resort in Virginia. So, so did
1: uh, Kushner's. They also claimed that they were the inspiration. <laughs>
0: they, so. they all were. They all were. In spirit, they all were.
1: However, I will say that a lot of the, and I'll get into this in a minute, a lot of the research I've done, the blank blank got their start at the Concord is a big one that I've even found references to it when I've been researching theaters. Uh, Stars got their start at the Concord. But we'll get to that in a second, because that's next. So Gersinger's Golf Course remained open until 2017. Of course, the same with what you had just said. The owners bought it and intended to repair and reopen it, but they just didn't factor in the cost of running a giant resort, and they couldn't afford to do it. So it never reopened. Demolition of the buildings began in the summer of 2018. And the last building demolished on the site was on October 19th, 2018. So that's Grossingers.
0: And while we're in a pause, let me just say, while we, you know, while we were talking, I looked up the uh, thing about Kutcher's. It was a woman fell to her death from a roof at Kutcher's Hotel prior to a planned three-day festival supporting marijuana legalization. Basically, she got drunk and fell off the roof. And the sheriff's deputies on Friday morning closed the hotel and ordered all guests to leave, turning away others as they trickled in to claim their tickets. And this was October 11, 2013 is when this article was posted. So when I say that was the final nail in the coffin, I'm sure that they lost a pretty good amount of money on that. And that was probably something that they were limping along at that point. So you never want to say, oh, this one thing is the reason, but it certainly did not
1: help. Well, that sounds like it, not that it was the one thing, but it was like the... Final uh, nail in the coffin, essentially. Yes, yeah, exactly. The final nail in the coffin. There you go.
0: The pitcher coffin.
1: All right, so the Concord. I know this was, uh, I did see this one, but for some reason, I don't know, I didn't find it very photogenic. I didn't photograph it and that's probably because it was uh it originally started as the a place called the Ideal House in the 1920s and 1930s and it was rebuilt into the 500-bed Concord Plaza in 1937 and of course they were competing with grossingers so following world war II, it was renamed the New Concord Hotel and it was it kept expanding and it added amenities like a ski slope and a golf course because Grossinger's had both of those. They opened a tropical indoor pool in 1951, and they hired a prominent hotel architect, Morris Lapidus, to design new modern guest wings. And they redesigned the interiors for the lobbies, the dining spaces, and the nightclubs. A huge rotunda and promenade, a place called the Night Owl Lounge, and the Imperial Room Nightclub. Now, the Imperial Room nightclub is a spot where a lot of places, a lot of stars played. So the original Performing Arts section was the cordillion Room, and it was built in the 1950s, and it had 1,500 seats. And they thought that they needed it needed to be bigger. So the Imperial Room sat 3,000 in a uh, circular space, and it was the one of the largest, if not the largest, venue in the Catskills. So. Ten-story guest wings replaced the original hotel in the 1950s. So the Imperial Room attracted a lot of entertainers who filled it to standing room only. So all 3,000 seats were full, and people were standing around. You had Buddy Hackett, Tony Bennett, Milton Berle, Tony Martin, Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. received an award there in 1963, and the Concord lasted until 1998, which was surprising after it closed i remember going to it uh in probably i want to say 2006 or 2007 i don't remember it being there being very much inside i remember being very boring it looked like a lot of the rooms had been cleaned out we really didn't spend that much time because in there because the hotel that i liked was the was around the corner and it was the hayden hotel and that's actually that which was a little older and a little grungier, and that was what I was. I've always kind of been a little more into than more modern architecture. Anyway, the Concord was demolished in 2008, and the site sat for 10 years. And there's a casino resort called Resorts World World Catskills, I believe, opened there two years ago. Uh, yeah, so Resorts World Catskills took the place of the Concord Hotel, and it is open. And it is a giant modern hotel built on the site of the Concord. So, the next one. Is the Haydn still standing, by the way? The Haydn is not. Okay. The Haydn was a smaller hotel. It was more like a bungalow. Like It was like one long hotel, and then it had a couple bungalows around it and a couple little outbuildings. Um, allegedly, it was burned by, caught fire and burned down. Now, there was a story in the newspaper up there that a few weeks before the hotel burned down, the owners talked to the local fire department about doing a controlled burn of the building. And then three weeks later, so it burned down on its own. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That seems a little suspicious to me, but it could have just happened. I'm not accusing anyone. And as
0: we mentioned before, like, fire really claimed a ton of the buildings up there. Uh, One of the things that I had noted kind of earlier before we move on to the pines, but there were two architectural styles that were really prevalent after the Victorian period. One was called the Sullivan County Mission Architecture, and the other was uh, Sullivan County Tudor. And um, the mission architecture is actually really familiar to anybody who would be in like California. It was these uh, stucco buildings that kind of had that, the mission architectural style. And and one of the reasons that they said that this became popular was because essentially uh, one thing was that it it is kind of reminiscent of synagogue architecture. But the other thing is that the uh, stucco outsides of the buildings gave you this sort of false sense of it being secure from fire. Because if you're looking at a building that's an all wood structure, yeah, in right. an area that has fires that happen to these hotels at a relatively regular amount, you're going to look at the outside and you're going to be like, oh, it's stucco. That's probably less likely to burn, even though these, it's the exact same stuff underneath it.
1: That could be. The Hyden, the from what I remember, didn't have stucco on the outside it looked like a very long it was a long building that's what i remember and by the time i had gone there it was so overgrown you really couldn't tell but yeah it's interesting that so many of them were lost to fire over the years but i wonder if if that is like the area or if that's just you had so many of these buildings in this location that there of course there a percentage of these will be lost to fires and especially before you know, fire trucks were really a thing. In the, right. You know.
0: They're going to be hard to get up into the, the sorts of areas that they're...
1: Exactly. At. And when you have hundreds of guests and one of them smoking and accidentally drops a pipe or a cigar or something and it catches something on fire... Your, your kitchen staff set something on fire, you know. Exactly. You know that, And you call the fire department and how long does it take them to get up to your mountain resort? Which is made entirely of wood. Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. Except for the overlook, which is made of stone. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, um, I think that was one of the things too, like when they started moving into the more mid-century modern period, which is kind of the Borscht Belt heyday or whatever, there would have been things more like concrete and things like that that are used in in the construction. but yeah, I mean, in the early days, like you pointed out, you're not going to have people that are able to get up. You're going to uh, immediately to take some, take care of something like that. But again, I mean, it's just weird. Like, there are one or two places that I'm going to throw out there that I don't think you covered that, yeah, I mean, it's just like the,
1: the whole things burning just happens again and again and again and again. I would not be surprised, and I didn't find any reference to this, but I I bet if we did a little more research, We'd find that the larger hotels, especially like the Concord, which is on a lake, probably had their own fire department of sorts. Probably a couple guys and a hose system that could run off the lake. So the Pines. I'm the sorry Pines. to distract us, but. No, it's all right. So the woman that I mentioned earlier, Dree, this was her favorite hotel, the Pines. So I believe I went to the Pines two or three times. It began as the uh, Daisy View Hotel. and It offered such amenities as bathtubs with hot and cold water in every room. There's dancing, live music. It was kosher, and it was replaced by a place called the Monica Lodge in 1931. And then it was sold to a man named Harry Cohen in 1946 and was renamed the Pines. And he grew it into one of the largest resorts in the Catskills. And it had all the same recreations as. The others, except it didn't have a ski slope. So you had tennis, skiing, golf, swimming. There were lots of bars. There was a lounge, there was a ballroom, a nightclub. And the nightclub you might see Robert Goulet or Joan Rivers, Tony Bennett, Buddy Hackett again. In 1949, they added a new recreational building and another hotel wing. You might be familiar with the uh, swimming pool with the outdoor arch bridge. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a photo of that in the show notes. That was constructed in 1959, and the bridge linked cabanas on one side to a rooftop bar. They redesigned it a little bit in the 1950s, early 1960s, so you had a new lobby, a new card room, and a new indoor pool, and then a new light, uh, nightclub, which was a 1,300-seat per- Parisian room in 1962. They added more rooms, more guest rings in the 60s, and then it did have a ski slope. So you had a nine hole golf course, ice skating rink, a ski chalet and a lift, which were installed in 1965. And that was the first chairlift in the Southern Catskills. So one of the things that started to happen with the Borscht Belt was, well, actually I'll get into this in a minute. So the Pines bought a golf course, they sold some of the land and it was turned into condos called the Pines Country Estates. In 1996, the kitchen and dining room at the Pines collapsed, and it closed to rebuild the roof. And then it closed for good in 1998 when it was purchased to turn it into condos. The buyer uh, filed for bankruptcy, and the case was resolved, and the company paid a settlement for back taxes. And they were going to raise the whole thing and turn it into 700 homes. Ended up not happening. The town of Fallsburg ordered the owners to demolish it, some of the buildings in 2008, and they, all those buildings were in a very advanced state of decay, and so those were taken down. And now the ownership is kind of disputed. There's a person who claims to be, his name's Abraham Piller, who says he's a 50% owner in Fallsburg Estates. He sued one of the other partners, so it's still up in the air. A religious court of rabbis in Brooklyn tried to settle the case. And that's still, they're still fighting over it. And the property just kind of sits there and falls apart even more. So why did this area start to decline? Why would people stop going to these resorts? And one of the things that happened is air travel. It became convenient and cheap to fly somewhere else. And the interstate highways that were built after World War II made it even easier to drive somewhere. And then, one of the in the book that I read, it happened in the Catskills. One of the things that they brought up was the sort of the new version of the Catskills are all-inclusive cruise ships because they're essentially these resorts just boats, like. You know, you still have all the same stuff. You still have the sports you can play. You still have the pools. You have bars. You have nightclubs with famous people. And it's all included, the food, everything. And so they argue that that's what people started going to that. We'll see you know, about that after COVID, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the 60s, there was a big Jewish migration to Miami and Los Angeles that started to slow down. Another thing that happened is people remembered going to these places with their families with their grandparents and when the grandparents started to pass away people didn't feel as nostalgic to go there and spend time at these places because you didn't have your family there or all of your family and then the other thing was people were intermarrying and so it didn't really make sense for the new families to go to this intensely Jewish community vacation. And so all of these factors led to the decline of these uh, resorts.
0: Yeah, so basically, I, right, exactly. In the book by Ross Pavlok, he basically says, he attributes it to what they said in the area was uh, called the three A's, air conditioning, air travel, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. So the air conditioning part was that cities now had air conditioning. So the idea of going up to these resorts in the mountains that you have air conditioning at, like is not as appealing when you have it in the area around you. And most people in fact have it. The air travel, like you said, that really was a big thing. And he mentioned the fact that it was cheaper to fly to Tel Aviv than to spend a weekend in the Catskills. So why not do that? And the third thing that kind of ties into what you were talking about with the intermarrying is, And the anti-Semitism part was there was a lessening of discrimination, which meant that if you're a Jewish family, you can go to other places. They're not necessarily going to say, sorry, if you're Jewish, don't bother coming here like they did in the brochure earlier. And the other thing, too, that kind of ties into your bit about the grandparents is that the nostalgic part was also because people are remembering this and they're remembering kind of like, uh, you know, they're less affluent past and being segregated. And there were certain things about these resorts that even though they were, they had this really kind of intense family atmosphere and were really culturally significant, you know, there was some baggage with that too. And a couple of the other factors as well was that you had owners that were passing away that had these places and they were the ones that had the really personal relationships with the celebrities, with the guests, with the people that are coming there to stay. And so if you're going there and the person that kind of is the unifying factor passes away and their kids take it or some corporation takes it, they're not like really into it. You know, it's like the the family matriarch Mm -hmm. or patriarch is not there anymore. Another thing too was just these hotels are competing with each other so fiercely that they basically were getting into mortgages that had uh, terms such that even if they were fully booked, they wouldn't really be able to keep up with them. Other places were over-mortgaged and went bankrupt because of that. And a couple of the other things too was, you had this whole period in the 80s where they did these renovations that kind of destroyed the spirit of the places. And the buildings themselves were just too large to renovate. They had this really high overhead with the staff and the administration. And initially, these places had been sort of family and friends of the owners that are staffing the place. It's not like that anymore. And then the final thing was that as the smaller hotels in the area went under, the whole area just kind of had this depressed sort of feel about it. So when you went up there, you're driving by these places that are abandoned that you might have gone to. And it just didn't have that kind of Fun atmosphere that it did. You see this kind of death spiral in a lot of places where you have less consumers equals less revenue equals less money for upkeep. And then the less money for upkeep you have, the less guests you get. And it just sort of spins around until the place is gone. So there were a whole bunch of reasons about this, why the places started to go under. But I think when you look at all of those factors, it was just this perfect storm where you have a, a, a place that was essentially the one of the most densely packed places in terms of resorts in the world. I mean, there were an absolutely astonishing amount. There were like 538 hotels, a thousand boarding houses, 50,000 bungalows, and most of them didn't survive.
1: Yeah. So very interesting little large area to research. I mean, we could probably go on, for another three or four episodes on this, just this. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's,
0: it's uh, amazing when you look at like all of the architecture and history that's kind of lost in the area, and other ones like the Nevely, that was one that I actually did go to that was much more modern. Browns, which I was checking into that while you we were talking about them. I guess their part of the dirty dancing thing was that the character Penny in the movie, there was like a dance instructor and Browns that was like her. So, and it's just interesting too, you know, like you had all these people that got their start and that, I don't know if you mentioned uh, Sid Caesar, you
1: mentioned Jerry Lewis, right? Jerry Lewis, Jackie Mason, Rodney Dangerfield, Phyllis Diller, Woody Allen, uh, Milton Berle, Mel Brooks, Lenny Bruce, George Burns, Brad Buttons, Jack Carter, Estelle Getty, Robert Klein, Jonathan Winters, <laughs> uh, Don Rickles, Carl Reiner, the list is a mile long of people who either played here or got their starts here. Anyway, I think that is uh, about wraps it up for the Catskills. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, there's a lot that we could touch on. There's a lot more stories to go into, but I mean, just as kind of a general overview of the places, why there were so many places left over. I think, yeah, that's a good place to stop it. And we were talking about having our next next episode be one where we interview the owner of one of the most famous places in the Catskills that was a uh, destination that tons of people know. Everybody really enjoyed basically the largest privately owned abandoned zoo in America, and she purchased it after they had closed it and was working on turning it into a hotel afterwards. Awesome. Bed and breakfast, I should say.
1: I'm excited. I've never actually been there. I will say that my mom sends me every article about it that she's, uh, find because she still lives in the uh, Hudson Valley area and they talk about it quite a bit in the local newspapers. No, no kidding. Yeah. It, w- was she there when she was younger? I don't think so. I think she just sees abandoned and something and says, Oh, Matt would like to see this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you'll really enjoy the interview. I mean, um, Kathy is the one we'll be interviewing, and she is, I would, I would say she's not just somebody that I've worked with, but a good friend and a really cool person, good sense of humor, and a lot of really interesting stories about the place. So when we talk about it, we'll, we'll go over a little bit of how it, what its history was, how it came to be abandoned, and then we'll talk with her about what it's like when you and your husband buy an abandoned zoo and turn that into a functional property again. And and she wasn't just planning on um, paving it over. She wanted to do something that was really respectful of its history as well, which adds a whole other layer of challenge.
1: Yeah. Is it on the National Historic Register? I do not believe. Okay. So I was going to say that can also add a lot of, uh, it's nice, but it can also add a lot of uh, issues for people looking to restore or reopen an old building.
0: So, I mean, the thing is, with it being a zoo, there really isn't, like, it's not a place where there was one particular structure that was the meat of it. It was more like dozens, if not hundreds, of little right. ones peppered throughout the property. But, yeah, I mean, just something that was very beloved, very well-known to people in the area. Whenever I have, like, a presentation and I'm talking, I mentioned the Catskill Game Farm, I can tell who's been there by what people, like their eyes light up in the audience because they're like, I remember going there, you know, a goat nibbled on my brother's shirt. And the other people are like, what the hell is Game for?" So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that next time. But yeah, it's been great talking to you tonight, Matt. I appreciate your knowledge on these various places. I'm very jealous that you got to go to several of the ones that I did not. But I guess that's the way it always is.
1: And with that, I'm Matt Lambrose of After Final Curtain. I can be found at afterfinalcurtain.net. I've Curtin on Facebook, Instagram, and Matt Lambrus on Twitter. And I am Matthew Christopher of
0: Abandoned America. You can find my two Abandoned America books wherever fine books and my books are sold. And you can find me on uh, abandonamerica.org or US, or you can uh, find me on pretty much any social media at Abandoned America. So I also
1: have books. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. After the Final Curtain, Fall of the American Movie Theater, and After the Final Curtain, America's Abandoned Theaters, and King's Theater, Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Brooklyn's Wonder Theater. All on Amazon. All also purchasable on my site. The After Final Curtain books can be found in every bookstore that you can imagine. The King's book cannot. King's
0: book is very hard to find, yeah. But you can order that through you. Yes, yes.
1: And Amazon which is also just me, but it's on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. I sign them all. Yeah, I sell signed
0: books too, so that's... I mean,
1: I signed I think, Amazon. I think
0: we've, we've just shamelessly plugged ourselves right into a whole... Yeah, cart. So. A bit in America after the final curtain. We'll get out. Yep. See you later, guys. See you later. Well, that wraps it up for our episode on the history of the Catskills, but next week's episode, we'll be talking to Kathy Ballone, who bought an abandoned zoo in the Catskills with the dream of turning it into a bed and breakfast. Despite what seemed like an almost insurmountable challenge, she pulled it off. We'll discuss her wild story and the history of the famous Catskill game farm. One final thing. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends, and if you'd like to become a supporter, just go to Abandoned America on Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes goodies, and a whole lot more. Thanks so much.